Last week, uh, last week we saw this, uh, in the passage we, we were in last week, we saw the battle between God and Pharaoh. This, this fascinating battle between Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and, and, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and God wants them to take, God wants to take them out of Egypt, but Pharaoh continues to say no. And so God brings about these plagues. And last week, we, there are 10 plagues, and we went through the first nine. And God brings judgment after judgment after judgment upon the land of Pharaoh. And we see this Pharaoh, this guy who all mighty and powerful, and yet is so indecisive and really fickle. You know, he's, he's in trouble, and he's like, okay, fine, you can get out of here. And then, and then he's out of trouble. He's like, no, you can't. And he plays this game. He plays these games with God. And continues to oppress the people of God. Uh, the plagues were given. And this is what we said last week. The plagues were given to answer the question that Pharaoh gives. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? And, and this question is for all of us. And each and every one of us has to work out how to answer that question. Who is God? Who is God to me that I should obey and listen to him? It's a really, really good question. And uh, I hope that you have spent some time to wrestle through this. It's through these plagues that God shows his awesome and absolute might and power, not just to Pharaoh, but the whole world, so that no one could deny that it was God that was greater than them all. So last week we looked at the first nine plagues, and the reason why I left the tenth plague is because the, the last plague is the final domino to then what we know as what we call the Exodus, the coming out of Egypt. Um, so there is a little bit of scripture that's going to be read today. I'll give, I'll give you that warning in advance. Um, and so just as I read, it'll be on the screen, it'll be on your screen down the bottom. Uh, it's just really important to, to hear the story. Okay, So Exodus chapter 11 Verse 1 to 8, and this is where we begin. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the, the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down to me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So the climax the climax of this whole episode of, of God's people in Egypt is about to happen. The, the, the killer punch is about to be thrown. It's this 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn. 
And God pretty much says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come and I'm going to go throughout Egypt. And every firstborn son is going to die. From the son of the king to the son of the slave. Now, why is this important? Why the firstborn son? If we go back to the beginning of Exodus, it was the Pharaoh before this one who gave the the, the law of what? Take every son of the Hebrews and throw them into the Nile. So God is just flipping this. And that's really important for us to understand. God is not just, it's not just random. Like I'm just going to throw a random plague. But the, the, the plague of the firstborn son is a direct slap in the face back to Pharaoh. And it's pretty much saying, you did this to me. You did this to my people. Here's one back at you. But unlike the first nine plagues, God spends some time to speak to the Israelites to prepare them for this last plague. See, none of the other plagues, you, all the plagues just happen and, and, and Israel just had to stay still and God just moved around them. But this plague, God actually speaks to the Israelites. And this is now in chapter 12, verse 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they, can, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. I found that one funny because if you're a big eater, then you just need a bigger lamb. It's good to know that God, God puts that in there, okay? It's for the, for the big fellows like me. The animals you choose must be ye old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the heads, head, legs and internal organs, heads. Don't eat a sheep with heads, just one head. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is why the whole event is called the Passover. Because God would come down And if the Israelites had followed the commandment, if they obeyed the commandment of God, that there would be blood 
on the door frame of their house and God would pass over that house and they would be spared from death. See, this tenth plague is an act of judgment against the gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh is a god himself. The problem is, but for the Israelites, as they were living in the land of Egypt, they also committed idolatry. They actually turned to the Egyptian gods to worship them. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7. And I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set on your eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, you've got to understand this, and we'll come back to this. Why did God save the Israelite people? And it's not because they were sinless. The Bible actually says it a few times and talks about the Israelites who should have been worshipping God. They actually worshipped the local gods of Egypt as well. See, the 10th plague, the Passover, the, the, the plague of the firstborn, is not only an act of judgment against those who sinned against God, like the Egyptians, but is also an act of mercy for those who obeyed God. See, as they put the blood of an innocent lamb against their doorframe, God would see the blood, not their disobedience, not their idolatry, not their sin, but they would see the blood of an innocent lamb and would not strike them. Now, the Passover was such a significant event. If you actually have friends who are Jewish, um, the, the Passover is one of the key moments in the Jewish calendar, even today. God tells his people that this is going to be so big. I want you to commemorate this day, to remember this day. And actually, I want you to make it a whole festival, um, a whole week of celebration for generations to come. And this festival would be, become called the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. Okay, Exodus 12, 17 to 20. Celebrate the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. Because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. So that's a week. For seven days, no yeast is, yet, is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a cook. I'm the other side. I eat. You're either a cook, you either cook or you eat and clean. I'm the eat and clean person. Right? And I was thinking about this uh, yeast. Uh, and, you know, the Bible says for seven days, do not eat anything that has yeast in it. And the first thing that comes to mind is what? Beer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. It is. I actually just thought of that right now. I was like, wow, you can't drink beer for seven days. Um, but the other big thing is, we'll pray for you, brother. Other big thing. <laughs> the other, I guess, the, the standout food that has yeast in it is bread. Now, 
yeast is the element that is used to put in the dough to make the bread rise like that. It makes it fluffy, okay? You go to Coles to, to grab a loaf of bread. The reason why it's fluffy and puffed out is because yeast has been put in the dough to um, make it rise. And that process is called leavening, okay? Leavening. So, what happens if you don't add the yeast to bread, right? Well, you still have bread, but what it's called is it's called unleavened bread. So bread that has not rised, and that's what it is, right? That's called unleavened bread. Or where I came from, that's called lead bread, right? That's just lead bread, right? That's the bread that you eat with kebabs. And if you're not from Australia and you don't know what a kebab is, it's amazing. That's all it is. If you ever come to Sydney, just you ask me. DY kebabs, hay hays, hay hays in Auburn. Where's a good, I don't know. There. Anyway, I'm, I'm moving on a tangent. I'm getting too excited now. It's the flat bread. So it's not that you can't make bread without yeast, but what it doesn't do is it, it doesn't rise. So what does the plague of the tenth, uh, the plague of the firstborn and then the Passover have in common? How do they all come together? Well, it's the night of the plague. It's the night where God will come through. That is the night where the Passover is meant to be done. Well, that's the night it was done. And uh, it's not just about eating and, and covering yourself with the blood on the house, but, but it's about the posture that God actually asked the Israelites to eat this. And we see this in Exodus 12, 11. And, because, and it says this, this is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The reason why the yeast was taken out of the bread is because yeast takes time. Right? You gotta put it in the dough, you gotta let it cook, you gotta let it rise. But the reason why God said take out the yeast is because there was no time that night. Because that's the night. Not only did, would God come and bring down the 10th plague, not only would he kill all the firstborns, but it's that night that all the Israelites in Egypt would finally move out of Egypt. That is the great exodus. That's why it's like, if you're going to have dinner, have your shoes on ready to go. Actually, the, the scene that it reminded me of, is there, a, I'll ask, see, see how cultured we are. What scene of a movie does that remind you of? Let's see who thinks like me. Famous movie. It's an older movie of a scene where they're ready to go somewhere. Sound of music. Ansley Chan, most cultured guy in our church. You watched it in Mandarin, but didn't you? You did. It wasn't available in Mandarin. There's a scene in the Sound of Music where they're escaping the Nazis and they're all ready they're ready in their mountain clothing and they're about to climb the mountains to go to the Swiss Alps and then they get caught and they're like, oh no, this is our, you know. Anyway, another tangent. Let's stay focused. So the whole idea was the Passover 
which is in the middle of the festival of the unleavened bread, it's such a significant day, not just for when it actually happened, but for generations to come, generations, the whole Old Testament. You'll see there's three major festivals, and one of the festivals is the festival of the unleavened bread. And the reason is it's because it's to that day you're meant to remind each other of what? This is the day that the Lord saved us out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 24 to 27. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. It's like Anzac Day. The reason why we have a public holiday on Anzac Day every year is to take a moment to remember the sacrifices that were made by people who live in this country for the freedom we have now. That's what it is. And so that's what the festival of the unleavened bread and the Passover is all about. Kids would be like, why do we have a public holiday today? And it's an opportunity to say, this is the day that God saved our people. It's to teach them the power and the might of God. You know, they would have told their kids, oh, the story of the 10 plagues and then this plague and then the final plague and then people went and left. Story of this almighty and powerful God, but also this story of this merciful, gracious God that saved his people. Time for action. Exodus 12, 29 to 42. Longer, longer passage. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorable, disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, there was about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and, flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord 
kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night, all Israelites, uh, to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. So God sends this final plague. And you just you hear it in the reading, just the devastation. There was not a house that did not have someone die. Um, absolutely devastating compared to every other plague that has gone through. And it's at this final plague that finally breaks Pharaoh uh, for whatever. It might have just been the death of his own son included. And he calls Moses and he says, get out. Get out of my country. So all the Israelites, 600,000 men plus women and children. Even if it's just one man, one woman, one child, we're talking 1.8 million people. 1.8 million people pick up their stuff and they leave Egypt after 430 years of living there. 430 years. And you know what? At the beginning of the 430 years, it was great living in Egypt. Because the prime minister was a, was, a, was a Hebrew. But many of those 430 years under oppression and slavery, they cried out to God. They cried out to God and God heard their cries. And finally, at this moment, he rescues them. Out of Egypt, out of slavery, and out of oppression. And there's a minor detail in this passage, and I love this one. But not, God, not only did they pick up and leave, but the scriptures say that they plundered the Egyptians. So this is what God says. And I don't know. I don't know if you're meant to find this funny or not, but I found it funny. I think you'll find it funny too. It's like if I was like, hey, I know that I'm going to migrate to America and I'm never going to see anyone here ever again. I know that. So what do I do? I go and borrow money. Hey, can I borrow some money? I'll pay you back tomorrow. I'll pay you back tomorrow. Hey, can I borrow your shirt? I'll give it back tomorrow. Can I borrow your car? Give it back tomorrow. I'll give it back tomorrow. I'll give it back tomorrow. Give it back tomorrow. And God actually made the, uh, the Israelites look good. And so all the Egyptians were like, yeah, sure, here you go. <laughs> here, have everything that I have. Here, 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 here. And then all the Israelites are like, ha, ha, suckers, we're not going to be back. <laughs> and as funny as that is, this is how God actually um, resourced the Israelites. This is how Israel became one of the wealthiest nations in the world because they pulled, a, they pulled one on the Egyptians. So from an Egyptian perspective, right, they've just gone through 10 ridiculously bad plagues. Their nation is in complete ruin. And now the Israelites borrowed my money and they took it and they didn't, they're never going to come back. So from, a, from Egypt being one of the most powerful nations at that moment was absolutely crippled. And this is just another reason, and it shows just the might of God. The might of God against the enemies. Out of Egypt, out of slavery, and out of oppression. And they finally leave. And that's where we're going to finish the story today. They finally leave. Now, there are three... I think three major observations that we can take from this story. And one of them has been quite similar over the last few weeks. And the first one is this, it, it's God's absolute power. His absolute power. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? 
And God responds with 10 plagues that absolutely destroy the nation of Egypt and cripple them completely. The 10 plagues were given to paint this picture of a God that is absolute in power. There is no comparison to his power. You know, at the beginning of those plagues, the Egyptian magicians, they could, you know, they did the same stuff. But after sort of two or three, they couldn't replicate what God could do. And it shows a complete distinction of just, look, God is here. God is off the charts in terms of his might and power. Can't be matched and will never be matched. So that's the first observation that we see from the whole experience, really. Secondly, from God's absolute power, we see God's amazing grace. He said that the Passover was not just a sign of true, uh, true judgment, but from God's people's perspective, it was a sign of amazing grace. Through their obedience and trust in God, through the sacrifice of the innocent lamb and putting the blood of that lamb on the doorframe of their houses, the judgment of God, the judgment of God passed over them. And they were spared. Now remember, the Israelites weren't innocent. They were guilty. In the eyes of God, they were guilty. They cheated on God with other gods. And yet God provided a way for them to be saved from this judgment. And this is going to, we see just this, they, they didn't deserve it. They deserve to die because they sinned against God. They, you know, what made them different from the Egyptians? They, they didn't worship God all the time. And that's why we see God's amazing grace. I lied. There's four observations. I just didn't change it on my sermon. <laughs> the third observation comes from our second one. God's amazing grace. And the third one is God's grace is not based on behavior. And I, and I put this one in really, um, I, I think this is a really important one because I think this relates to us the most. God did not save the Israelites because of their behavior. God did not hear their cry because they earned the right to be heard by God. They were guilty. But, but why did God save them? He saved them not because of behavior, but because of belonging. He saved them because they were his people and he was their God. And I said, this is something that we really need to understand. And, and I just want to spend a moment on this because it's, it's about what you can produce. Okay, that's not even Asian culture. It's just the world we live in. Stop being racist, Steve. It's everyone. The world we live in, we live in a world where it's a question of not who you are, it's about what you can bring to the table. What skills do you have? How much money do you earn? What occupation do you have? What suburb do you live in? What kind of car do you drive? And determined on all of those things, someone puts it all together and goes, ah, you must be a North Shore yuppie or a Eastern Suburbs yuppie or a you know, Westies, tradie, or, you know, and, and, and suddenly, based on behavior, our identity is formed. 
But in the economy of God, it happens the other way. It happens the other way. God does not love us because of what we can bring to him. God does not love us because of our good behavior. Because if we're truly honest with ourselves, okay, firstly, even just comparing ourselves to each other, some of us might be a little bit better in terms of our behavior. We might be a little bit, uh, this is bad English, but gooder. (laughs) You know? Like, I might look at, just use Albert, easy. I might, no, no. I might look at Albert and go, wow, Albert is just, he's, he's better looking than me. You know, potentially he could earn more money than me. You know, and, and, and you know, the world looks at Albert and goes, wow, like, so good. And then looks at me and goes, well, Steve is an angry guy. He, he can't control his emotions. You know, he's always yelling at people. You know, oh, Albert is better, right? From God's perspective, but, right? From God's perspective, he's the same. You know, I use this analogy all the time. It's like trying to jump towards the moon, you know? I'll use Albert and me as, as actually, that's a bad, ex- we're, we're just, we wouldn't jump. <laughs> we just would be stuck. Um, if Ansley and I were standing next to each other, and for those that don't know Ansley on the live stream, he's our drummer. Check him out. Makes sense. Make sure he doesn't make any mistakes. <laughs> if I... Sorry, no pressure. <laughs> if Ansley and I stood here and we said, we're going to have a competition. We're going to see who can jump closest to the moon. And I jump. And trust me, I'm not going to get very high. Right? I jump, you know, 20 centimetres. And then Ansley gets up here. He's man, I smashed that. And he jumps 50 centimetres. It's two and a half times what I jumped. Everyone here, everyone here would be like, Ansley is so much closer to the moon than you. Right? Makes, makes sense to us. But what if you were on the moon and you were looking at it from the moon, right? Looking at these two dots on earth. It doesn't matter how much more Ansley jumped than me. It wouldn't even look like we jumped. It didn't look like we got Ansley got closer because we're so far away to start off with. It actually doesn't matter. See, this is what something that we need to understand is that your sin and my sin, when we start to weigh them up, we might start thinking, hey, you know, I'm a little bit better than you. You know, I didn't do this, or I didn't do this, or, you know, I do this, I do charity work, I give more. We we try to compare each other. Uh, But can I just tell you, uh, from God's perspective, uh, it doesn't, you've got to compare to God. And when you compare to God, and God's uh, perfect, and it's very high standard, we're all the same. We're all the same. And yet, and yet we find ourselves, right, and this is the tricky part, we find ourselves in church thinking that if I do a little bit more, then God would love me more. If I live a better life, then God will accept me more. And I'm telling you, God does not love you because of your behavior, what you did, what you didn't do, what you will do or what you won't do. The reason why God loves you is because of your identity. 
as his child. Now, I've got four kids. I've got four kids. Sorry, that wasn't being prophetic. I just didn't put my thumb down. <laughs> Lord, 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 scrap that bit. <laughs> Cut my thumb off. <laughs> Each of my kids have varying degrees of behavior, right? One's going to be good. One's going to be not that good. One's going to be a little rat bag. And the other one is like borderline like, you know, we adopted you. You know, like, you know, like I'm just not going to tell you which ones they are, okay? But the reason I love them is not because of their behavior. How messed up would that be? And this is where the problem comes in. The problem comes in when I start loving my children based on their behavior. Hey, or all A student, you get ribs, chips, you don't have to eat salad, soft drinks, and then the D student, you sleep outside. And you can eat whatever you can find in the backyard. If that happened, you would look at me, right? You would look at me and go, you are the worst father in the world. How can you do that? Right? But the funny thing is, we think that like that with God. And we think that it's like that for all of us. Oh, this person, you know, they're on the stage. They're serving. God must love them more. Oh, that person came late to service again. Only brushes their teeth once a day. You know, God, God, you know, it's not like that. The reason why my kids are loved by me is because they are my kids. Even if one of them ends up in jail, and Lord, once again, take that, don't, don't make that happen either. My love cannot be conditional based on their behavior. It has to be based on their identity, who they are. They're my kids. I made them. And that's how it is with God. See, I think we, we get stuffed up on this one because we think that we, we can't go to God or God doesn't love us because we're not good enough or we haven't lived this good enough life. Can I tell you? It's like jumping to the moon. You're never going to get there. You're never going to get even close I met so many people in my time in church and in ministry. I'd love to come to your church, but I don't know if God will love me. You know, you know, I've done some pretty bad things in my past. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, dude, number one, it's God. He already knows. You can't hide anything from God. But secondly, you have a miss, you have a complete misunderstanding of who God is. Because if God was to love you based on your behavior, no one. No one on earth would be able to receive that love. But his love for us is not behaved on, uh, it's not based on behavior, but it's based on your identity. And the scripture tells us that you are his son, you're his daughter, and he loves you because of that. Because of that. The son that we need to understand, you don't earn the right to be a child. Do you ever think about that? You don't earn the right. You know, one kid, you know, one of my kids goes, Father, I've finally done it. Straight A's. Now can I be your son? And I said, good job. You can now be my son. That's so jacked up, right? 
No, they, they don't have to earn their right to be my child. They're just my child because I made them. You know, they're my child because that's just their identity. And that's the same with us, with God. God cares about you, not because of what you do or what you bring to the table or what you can do for him. He cares about you because of who you are, your identity, and you are his child. Finally, uh, what's the Passover got to do with me? The Passover is such a powerful story because it sets a pattern of how God is going to work in our lives for the rest of history. Just like the rebellious people, we too deserve judgment of God. To say that again, we need to explain ourselves before the Creator. Can I just tell you, you every single one of us is going to have to stand before God because He's the one who's made us and we're gonna, He's going to get the book of life out and He's going to get your life out and He's going to please explain. Why did you do this? Why did you think this? Or why didn't you do this? Every one of our actions, every one of our thoughts is going to be under the microscope. And we're going to have to explain to God why we did what we did. And the end result is always going to be the same. It was not perfect in the eyes of God. It would never, it's not even been close. And based on that, based on that, is going to be what your eternity ends up. All right? We call this the afterlife. You can call it heaven and hell, all of that. Right, But the Bible tells us that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, the penalty for that sin is death. Just like the angel of death would come throughout Egypt, in the same way, if we were to die without God, then we would experience that death forever. But God, in his love for his people, would send us a similar thing, right? He would send us a sacrificial lamb, Right? to take that perfect and unblemished lamb and to kill the lamb, to slaughter the lamb and to paint the blood of that lamb on the doorpost. But that sacrificial lamb, that perfect lamb is his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross and the blood that was shed, it's exactly the same concept. The blood of Jesus would be painted over our lives. And so when the judgment of God came through, it doesn't see your sin. It sees the blood on the doorframe of your life and God's judgment passes over. And instead of receiving death, we receive life. This is why we sing of things like the lion and the lamb. If you were new to church, that'd be such a confusing song. Our God is the lion. Okay, yeah, okay, we get that part. He's strong, he's mighty. Our God is the lamb. Chop, what? What? <laughs> but that's why it's the lamb. Because it's the blood of that innocent lamb, the lamb that is Jesus, that covers us. And so when the judgment of God goes through, we are passed over. This is why the blood of Jesus is so important, because it is what saves us from not just eternal damnation, but it gives us life with God instead. But this is for the one who obeys God and seeks God 
and acknowledges their sin and the need for a saviour. The one that declares that Jesus is Lord and saviour. And that it's only by his blood that we are saved. And I wonder tonight, if I was to ask you, are you saved? If the angel of death was to walk through in this place right now, what would they see? Would they see you, your life, what you deserve? Or would they see the blood? Will they see the blood of Jesus over your life for you to say, you know what, I'm not good enough and I'm not going to trust myself, but Jesus sent his one and only son, uh, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross and shed the blood for me and I'm going to paint that blood over the doorframe of my life so I can be saved. Can I tell you, you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be good enough for God to for you to be like, I deserve love. No, you, you, you just won't get there. But it's Jesus, and it's by his blood that we can be saved. And there's a very important question for each and every one of us. It's not, are you good? We all know the answer to that. The answer is no. The question is, are you saved? Are you covered by the blood of Jesus? And I pray that tonight as we do I guess, look at the Passover and in the Exodus, that we remind ourselves that it's Jesus we need to find, not goodness. It's Jesus we need to find. And it's only his blood that will save us out of our Egypt, out of our slavery, and out of our oppression to sin. And I pray that for all of us here and everyone that's joining in on the stream, that you would find him tonight. Let's pray.